Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got Doxy Lizzie Deary. Lizzie is a lecturer in clinical exercise physiology with a particular interest in lifestyle-related diseases. Lizzie holds a PhD in occupational sedentary behavior and health, and other areas of research include the prevention, treatment, and management of chronic illness with physical activity and nutrition. So welcome onto the show, Lizzie. Thank you very much, Shane. Thank you for having me. So if we go right back to the very beginning, why did you want to focus particularly on sedentary behavior? Um, well, I guess if we go right back to the very beginning, like many people, I started off with an interest in sports. Um, so played sport growing up, not particularly well, but loved it um, and saw that there was a lot to be gained from it. So I did a sports science undergrad um, and then towards the end of that undergrad process became very interested in things like cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes and um, cardiac rehab. And so I did my master's in clinical exercise physiology, which focused um, more on the, the sort of clinical side of things. So how could I take everything that I'd learned? And I was, I was always really passionate about exercise physiology that fascinated me. But applying that to clinical populations was really what, you know, piqued my interest in that sort of final year of my undergrad. Um, so then I did a year master's at Liverpool John Moores University looking at clinical exercise physiology. Um, my master's project focused on cardiac rehabilitation. So the use of exercise for patients who were undergoing chemo radiotherapy prior to surgery. Um, and following on from that, I worked in a health screening industry. Um, so sort of gaining lots of hands-on experience working with people. Um, I was based in central London. So I was working with a lot of people who were based at their desks all day. Um, and that's really what piqued my interest then in sedentary behavior and the impact that that could potentially be having on things like cardiovascular disease risk and, and diabetes, etc. And then uh, the PhD opportunity came up looking at, at exactly that. So um, it, it's been, a, I guess, a kind of a long road to figuring out that that was my interest. Um, and I am still very much interested and in I work with prehabilitation, rehabilitation, but I'm also interested in you know, we all spend the majority of our day at work, don't we, in whatever capacity that is. Um, so I think it's important to understand whether that could be having a negative impact on our health. So if I bring it to the fast forward to the present on 2020, under the COVID pandemic, Lizzie, how much of an effect or altering effect has it had on sedentary behaviour? So we know less about sedentary behavior as opposed to sort of people's physical activity levels, so how much exercise they're doing. Um, so Sports England publish data every year on um, sort of population activity levels, and they've reported that both for children and adults between March to May, so when we first had the lockdown all the way through to May, there was a, a decrease in physical activity levels of a population. And I think that that probably doesn't surprise many of us. Um, there's also been literature which has looked at step counts recorded on people's phones um, and this has been a, a global study that's been carried out 
um, which again has shown exactly what we would probably expect, that, that, that step count has gone down, that movement has gone down. So it's early days. We know not as much as we would probably like to, but it certainly looks as though people are moving less. Um, and I think that's probably unsurprising given that we're all confined to our own homes at the moment. But how do you how do you change that? Because ultimately, at the beginning of the pandemic, people were exercising more. Is it down to a lack of? And I don't like to use these words because I think they're just they're just saying you know willpower, motivation. Uh, you, you talked about ultimately going from one room to the next. It's not going to require a lot of effort anyway. So you, the, the step count is going to be lower. But what is it particularly from a physiology perspective that is causing that? That is causing which part of that? Us to, to move around less or? <clears throat> I'd put, well, if we start there and then ultimately I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So I think, you you know, like you say, we incidental movement has gone down, hasn't it? So where before we will have had to, you know, get from our homes to our workplace, whatever that may be, um, that always involves some incidental movement. So, um, I mean, you mentioned motivation and willpower. I think that comes into it to a degree, of course, when we talk about behaviour at all, we have to consider those factors. Um, to refer back to the Sport England research, they've actually looked at, for both adults and children, what what were people reporting the reasons to be why they were less active? Um, and it's really interesting. You can have a look. It's on their website. Um, it's really interesting to see some of the reasons for that. And for some people, it's, you know, priorities have shifted. So before it used to be perhaps easier to get your gym session in or go to your class or whatever it may be. Now people have got other worries, be that financial, occupational, um, family, homeschooling. So all of these things now, um, you know, come higher on the priority list and exercise invariably will fall down on that priority list, which again strengthens the argument for incidental movement. You know, what can we do a little bit more of in our day? that isn't going to be a huge time investment for us. I think that's probably important moving forwards. But also you didn't mention, you know, that, and you know this for a fact, that exercise is obviously a, um, an aid in towards uh, lowering anxiety. You, if you've got financial stresses, uh, having to do juggling multiple tasks of possibly doing your own work, uh, family life and then trying to educate your kids and you're overwhelmed that is ultimately going to be an aid so it it is and I could put my hands up because I do it as well but you would think that people would look to exercise as a positive you don't necessarily have to go for a miles upon my walk which television is saying kids are getting frustrated. Well, why do we have to go on another walk? I think that generalizes it too much because I think some of them will probably be happy to leave the, the surrounds of their, of their house uh, for a little bit at a time. Obviously there's the, the others that have got game consoles and that's a, 
different stressor in itself that universities have tried to to replicate for and I know I did this when I did my undergraduate we looked at using the way for I can't I think more for a psychological study yeah to see what the effects were and and what that's obviously causing is sedentary behavior in, in a younger generation because I get fixated on what I'm doing because of the stimulus that mm. it's given me ultimately the games want the, the game manufacturers want that because if you spend more time in in playing and can and ultimately in a form of gambling which it is they're they're very happy so I think through the generations the exercise that you talk about is, is massively shifted because from my generation to somebody that's maybe in their early 20s and in their teens I didn't have to be told twice to go outside to, to go and enjoy the, the sun. Sometimes it was through choice. Sometimes it was turn off the console and you're going outside. Yeah, you don't exactly. have a choice. Exactly. Whereas maybe through the, the transitions in, in uh, generations, they've had a reluctance to, to want to part with um, virtual reality. Mm, yeah, I think you're right there. The, the, um, the screen time is a, a huge concern and that's something that we've seen. I mean, you mentioned that we, um, one of our lecturers, uh, Dr. Mike Morris, has done a study looking at the, the energy expenditure and the physiological responses to that type of gaming. Um, and there's also been some work done around um, um, and on, well, not online, it's sort of a, it, the aim is to get you out and about. It's called Beat the Street. You may have heard of it. Um, so essentially a little bit like this geocaching, I think, that people are doing. So can we sort of engage people with gaming outdoors? <laughs> is so is it a bit like Pokemon Go? Yes. Okay. Yeah, very similar concept. Um, so these are some of the things that are being used to try to get people out. But exactly like you say, you know, it, it's just a different environment to how you or I grew up. Um, but it's the reality that we're in. And we do have to, I think, find ways of moving forward with that and especially when formal sport isn't on for kids at the moment so you know they can't go and do their usual training their usual outlet whatever that may be again I keep coming back to the sport England data but the kids were saying we are actually a little bit nervous to go out and meet people as well because you know we're being told about this virus so I think physical activity participation has always been a really tricky one because you want to you've got to try to make sure that you are not helping the already active people be more active which is obviously great but the greatest benefit for us as as people that are interested in in a more active nation is helping those people who find it really difficult how can we help them overcome those barriers um so yeah i think it's it's a hugely complex scenario um and one which as a as a field we're going to have to to work hard to to work around that, I think. So how do you push him emotionally to change? Because ultimately, for what you're talking about, Lizzie, to get somebody to exercise more that's already active doesn't take much persuasion because ultimately they see the benefits. But how do you motivate somebody that has never exercised in their life without ultimately using, as good marketing does, to play on somebody's emotion to make them buy something, how do you do it without making them feel guilty? 
Mm. Yeah, million dollar question, right? <laughs> I think relatability is the, is the first thing that we know is important and works. So we can look to things like um, This Girl Can campaign, um, the One You campaign. They've all been shown to be to be effective in, in terms of moving people towards change and change that works for that person as well. Because what I find useful, somebody else isn't going to find useful. And the next person along in the line will find something else that's useful for them. And we know that that's important, that we have to be able to empower people to make the changes that will work for them. Because if we just tell them to do X, Y, Z for eight weeks, then that'll reduce your blood pressure. They may do it for eight weeks if we're lucky. We know that actually they probably won't. They may do it if we're lucky, but it's got to be about adherence for long-term change. Um, and that in and of itself is, you know, a huge, a huge area. But autonomy around what that looks like, making sure that there is relatedness in there. Um, opportunities also really really important of course um yeah it's, it's so complex um and anyone who's sort of involved in the area will or any students that are potentially listening to this or anyone looking to study this area you know you do whole modules and programs on behavior change and it's a really fascinating fascinating area and is that something that is evolved over time because that the, did it exist when i did my university degree I think it was probably in his very infancy mm. of uh, ultimately. Um, this is going to test my brain now, though. But you know, <laughs> the inverted U theory and things like that. But that's in a sporting context, so it, it's very. I would say it's easy. It's probably easier to get that person into the state of optimal function, as you loosely call what it is from. From, from scientific data than it is for a regular person because it's got different priorities of, you know, what we mentioned before of homeschooling, financial stresses, um, looking for a job, if that is the case. Whereas for an athlete, for the majority, worldwide, if they're in a professional field, they are still doing normal normal day-to-day -day tasks. So I would probably go as far as to put it, go out on a limb with this, as when sport and entertainment is concerned, they don't live in the real world because there's no relatability with the rest of the population. Because you're, you're talking about things that, as far as I'm concerned, are not important, of you talking about uh, and laughing about things that are very, very serious. That's very concerning. So... It's as if they live in, you know, fantasy land. It's like uh, in this magic bubble. And um, obviously, probably for a lot of people, it starts to become very, you could tell by the sound of my voice, it becomes very frustrating for, for you not to be able to, to relate. Of You are in a very, I won't say lucky position, I would say fortunate position to be able to have some sort of normal normalcy versus everybody else that's probably stuck indoors. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes back to the relatedness, doesn't it? And I think that is where role models come into play as well, isn't it? There is a disparity between what people potentially think they need to be doing to exercise for health and what actually needs to be done. So, for example, if you speak to anybody about this, um, you know, you just pull 
Joe Smith off the street um, and ask them, the chances are they may think that they need to put on the tightest lycra they can find and go to the busiest place. And there has to be a selfie going on social media before, during or after. Um, and there's all of these external pressures around that sort of the social side of it. So there's this idea that, you know, you have to don like where you have to work really hard. And now if you're not getting totally out of breath, it's not worth doing. But actually what we know is that light intensity physical activity is also really important. So, you know, if you and I were to do this call whilst we were taking part in some sort of physical activity, we could still maintain a conversation, but we would also be raising our metabolic rate. And that we know is really important. Um, just in 2020, the World Health Organization have released an update on the physical activity guidelines. And for the first time, they have, so there's always been what we call moderate um, to vigorous physical activity guidelines. So they were 150 minutes a week, broken down, typically it was said um, 30 minutes, five days a week at an intensity that would get you slightly out of breath. You could probably maintain a conversation. They've now increased that to 150 to 300 minutes of that sort of and um, slightly higher intensity exercise. But for the first time, we see mention of light intensity physical activity. And this is more the sort of incidental physical activity that we see, you know, getting down to the shop if we're not taking the car, that type of thing. And I think that that's actually where a huge opportunity is. And this is going to, you know, it, it needs to be a huge um, effort to to change that potential view around what is worthwhile exercise um, and also remembering and, and educating the general population that movement is great that's what we need whatever movement it is that you enjoy that works for you and that fits in if it raises your metabolic rate raises your heart rate gets you slightly out of breath that's going to be a benefit you don't have to do all these things that you see the celebrities doing or that you see um, professional athletes doing, for example. Lizzie, do you think it's that disconnect if we bring in Olympic and Paralympic sport of, you know, the general populace viewing ultimately, you know, uh, we'll use Tokyo because it's only around the corner if it, if <laughs> when it happens. Because they see ultimately moderate to excess, intensive exercise, and they see that's the only way that they that, that, that can do it. But, and as you were talking, I was re, re, reminiscing of my time in sport of ultimately we do low intensity exercise to put in mileage. Um, mm. I'm not, and I'm not saying it's, it's, it's pleasant, but it has to be done to get the, the foundations to build upon ultimately the moderate and the, the, um, pretty much redlining exercise that elite sport has to do. But I think because people don't see that, they ultimately only view the, the, the upper two and probably the echelons of these people are pushing it to the extreme of exhaustion. Mm. And that's not for me. So I, I, I don't know how you would be able to, from a social media perspective, showcase that. For some sports, it would be easier than others. Football is when they're doing passing drills, I would say that's probably moderate to low intensity exercise because it's more important on uh, possession as opposed to actual exercise exertion. But I guess people don't see the 
maybe the how would I word this looking outside the box as in terms of what I'm talking about because I'm 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 um, actually having a thought process to think outside the box to to be able to have a multitude of examples on which that sport will have and there's probably more than two or three in, 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 in that particular case. But I guess what I'm coming at is because of whatever spectrum they lie psychologically of, you know, self-esteem and, 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 and motivation, if they're lacking in that because of historical repetition of failure, they've got no positive recall, which you and I know from a from a sport, sports science degree is massive because if you've got positive reinforcement, you're going to do it over and over and over again. Ultimately, athletes got probably failures, but they can be able to look at a particular adverse moment and say, what did I learn from that? And then ultimately implement that as well. But I see it from a coaching perspective. When I do speak to people, a lot of the answer or the rhetoric is, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like because they haven't got that that positive affirmation or what, whatever you want to call it to kind of say, well, I've succeeded in the past. This is how I do it again. I might have had a setback, but I still have something good to look upon. So I guess it's trying to give those bits of breadcrumbs or initial spark to an individual to kind of say, well, this is how I particularly did it. I'm not going to say that the entirety of this journey is going to work for you, but let's kind of start and then let the ball start rolling down the hill. And obviously the momentum takes, take care of the rest. Yeah, no, I agree entirely. I mean, so many things you're saying there and thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, there's so much in what you've just said to unpack. Um, as you, the first, I guess there's a few things. Like you say, the professional sportsmen and women that we follow on social media, let's say, exactly like you've just said, post their tough sessions where they're, you know, getting sick at the end or whatever it may be. They post that maybe once a week. What they don't post is the other 20 hours where they've just done a really boring session and, it, you know, it's got to be done. Um, so I think there's that, which um, potentially, as you say, can put people off. I think the other side is that we have this massive um, gap almost, not a massive gap, but we have a gap between um, the general population and sports. So, of course, some people are... Um, are sporty quote unquote they enjoy sport they want to do sports and even if they've not done sport for maybe 10 or 15 years there was a time when they did it and they will look to their footballers or their whatever athletes it is that they're looking up to we then also have another large proportion of the population who have no desire to play sport at all be that for their health or for their enjoyment it's just never been a part of them and I think the messaging needs to be different to try to appeal to that type of a person. And I think this is when we start then to encourage people to think about how it fits into their own day <clears throat> and, and reinforcing that it doesn't have to be a gym, it doesn't have to be sports. Um, and arguably the pandemic has 
allowed that to come forward to some degree because we've got all of these online sessions now and online workouts that we can do which just weren't really a thing 12 months ago let's say um so I think there's that around the messaging but then exactly like you say if somebody doesn't have the the previous experience of the benefits and of the self-belief that they can do that thing then it becomes difficult to to get them to buy in or engage in the first place so I think that's also really really important to think about um and developing self-efficacy. I know I mentioned previously how important autonomy is. Um, and you know, when you were sort of thinking about how we bring somebody from doing nothing to doing something, um, motivational interviewing is a really great skill for practitioners to have and coaches um, to use to try to allow people to generate their own ideas and strategies that will work for them. Um, we hear a lot about things like behavior change techniques and, uh, or sorry, behavior change theories and models, but what's becoming really useful is behavior change techniques. Um, and there's been publications on this over the past sort of 10 or more years. Um, so Susan Mitchie has been um, at the forefront of this. And those behavior change techniques can be applied really nicely when we work with individuals to try to bring about behavior change. And some of those techniques are things like highlighting disparity between where the person is now and their ultimate goal, but allowing them to come up with what might be the solution to that. And then we as practitioners are guiding them along um, I think of the, the bowling analogy. So we've got the bumpers up on the side. And we're just there to kind of, you know, gently guide, but they ultimately kind of make the decisions around what will work for them and what will be their strategies. So I think that's really important as well. And then I do think it just keeps coming back to this relatedness. And the, this Girl Can campaign was absolutely fantastic. And we need more of that type of campaign for a much wider audience. Why stop at just girls and women? Um, why not show a whole host of underrepresented individuals that they can be active in their own way? I just think that's something that needs to be harnessed within public health messaging. And that goes you know, beyond what you and I can do. But I think if we can shout about that, then that's gotta be some way towards moving in the right direction. Do you think, they never went as far as this. I used it more as attention grabbing as a as a Facebook Live. Uh, when Boris Johnson was talking about imposing a newer form of, I'll put it, I put it out as a fat tax, and a lot of people obviously went up in arms in terms of how can a politician do that? I ultimately did it on purpose, but why i did that is was to, to to create engagement is ultimately if if, if there is a, a newer tax involved some people are going to be alarmed to it some people are going to not be too pleased and ultimately people are somebody going to be agree with me and say that doesn't go far enough why do you think it takes and ultimately it doesn't actually it, the only person it actually hurts is the consumer it doesn't hurt these big corporate um, uh, conglomerates because they they change ingredients, they change this, that, or the other before it comes into into enforcement. You just look at sugar tax of Coca Cola; they change certain ingredients um, to suit so it 
the price hike really didn't make a big factor. It just it, it, it had another addictive in there. Why do you think governments time after time go down the guilt trip in terms of, well, we're going to penalise you and thus if we increase it enough, you're going to stop doing it. And, and, and smoking's proven that not to be the case. You, you've put uh, packaging, like disconcerting packaging to say this causes disastrous illness uh, and ultimately death, put it behind closed doors. People are still buying it. So ultimately uh, it should, I, I think it proves that, that rhetoric doesn't work it's 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 vilifying certain proportions of the population and i showcased that to one of my clients who did put kind of put their finger finger on the pulse and say james that's not that's not right what happens everywhere if it's not fat if it's not sugar if it's not alcohol if it's not smoking we have a tendency to polarize one portion of the population all the time just to make them feel guilty so is that going to change? Probably not. Human behavior is going to have to change to ultimately to, to, to sway that. And it's pretty much built into the DNA, which is pretty difficult because you're, as nature intended, trying to seek out weakness and ultimately where there's weakness is a flaw and you need to put, put that to one side because it's the detriment to the, to the larger group. Whereas as a cohort i think humanity has obviously gone against nature because we've, we've built any thing that we could to make life easier whereas human whereas nature is not like that nature is not intended for just just for, if i used to use myself as an example i've got a disability in theory you go back thousands of years and and to use the spartans I would be discarded because I'm not quote unquote perfect in terms of their their social their social uh, economic on which they work, but ultimately that that civilization is probably barbaric a little bit in modern sense of pretty much uh, torturing kids throughout their 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 entire lives to make them soldiers. They make good soldiers, but they would they make good people. But the point I'm making is pretty much we obviously seek comfort and things that are easy so to do to kind of go on from what you said lizzie to change the narrative on which the the majority of the population exists is going to be challenging because even if you pull them away from their sofa and the television for a little bit they're going to rebound back because oh that's that that's that's a lot easier to do, to do this is difficult whereas you said you didn't do sport to a high level but ultimately you chose to do sport i chose sport to go to to, to the highest level and people do ask well why did you do that it's because they wanted to do it it was i would go even further all the way in it was a dream so to make it a reality is not really difficult and ultimately most people have a battle versus dr their their dreams versus reality so it's multifaceted in terms of it's a very complex issue to be able to to target certain individuals 
some some of that you said who have been sport in the past probably easier because you can make them recall mm. certain events in the past where you used to be sporty you've lost your way a little bit how did that make you how how did you feel then versus now yeah. Yeah. is it a lot easier than somebody that does not have anything whatsoever they've always been dissuaded by physical activity probably because of p or uh, health is not being a priority in the household you've obviously got a disconnect so it's i see it as probably a double-edged sword yes the the government want to be seen to do making changes but sometimes they seem to be too drastic or don't go far enough it's like well you're just saying a, a statement to appease the doubters but you're not going far enough to penalize the people that can make massive changes. So if you penalize the supermarkets to, you cannot do, I think they went as far as you cannot have junk food at the end of that. They'll, they'll change it to make, to, to make, to be able to sell the product. They'll, they'll change. They'll look at their data as science does, as uh, any science does or any degree to that matter to look at data. Okay this particular thing is not working how do we change that to make our our dividends and our, our profits stay the same they'll mm -hmm. adapt and look at people's uh what do they do i was watching a particular program on it they're looking at people's footfall so that's quite scary to be able to analyze what the how, what a, a particular way in which people shop just by where they go into the supermarket so that's so you're looking at Wow, big brother. It's not looking at people's faces because they can't do that anymore because of data protection, but they're doing it a different way to be able to. So mine probably is not very easy because it depends on whether I'm hungry or not. And that's that's a vicious thing to that's a very very naive thing to do anyway, to go into to a place of where there's food when you're when hunger is involved because you're <laughs> going to make impulsive buys. Yeah. Absolutely. No, it's, it's, as you say, multifaceted, isn't it? Um, and I mean, the public health and, and policy around that is just, it's a whole other topic, but one which is obviously crucial if we want to move towards a more active nation, which should be the aim. Um, one of the things you said was, you know, ultimately, it's hard. And it is hard. It's, you know, you've probably got to set your alarm a bit earlier or you've got to, you know, record the soap that you want to watch or instead of sitting down with my feet up and cuddling the dog over lunchtime, I'm late enough and I'm getting out. Um, and that is hard. Um, the difference is you or I probably appreciate how great we'll feel during and after. Um, so no matter how big the dread is, you get going. And one of the things I always tell myself is, even if I don't want to get started, just go 10 minutes, 10 minutes in. If you want to stop, then you can stop then. And invariably, you never do. Of course, you're not stopping after 10 minutes. But we have that, um, that investment in the bank, if you like, of, of previous experiences where we felt amazing afterwards. And exactly as you highlighted, a lot of people don't have that. Um, and that's the bit that we need to, to try to help people move towards is creating that. Well, you know, if you did do that lunchtime walk or whatever it might be, that lunchtime yoga 
your session how do you think you might feel afterwards so even if they've never done it before getting them to envisage how it would make them feel how it could make them feel as well as getting them to envisage where it could fit into their day because it you know it doesn't have to be half an hour at a time if you can do three 10 minute sessions great it doesn't even have to be 10 minutes if you can do 10 three minute sessions fantastic way better than doing nothing and I think sometimes starting small is the key do you think it, it goes to a psychological, um, I don't say openness, but a, um, a willingness to be flexible and adaptable? Because you talked about 30 minutes breaking up into three. A lot of people will say, I, I, I don't know. You'll give them suggestions and, and, and they'll bat it away. Or I've speaking, spoken to some individuals and it's been frustrating at best and I say that lightly because they're coming up with solutions and batting them away so I'm thinking well you've not even tried it so why are you you saying it won't work and you know the old adage of the winter months of people saying oh it's going to be unbearable to go out well what are you basing that on yes it's unpleasant to go out if it's windy it's unpleasant if it's wet if you have the combination of those two together, it's not particularly pleasant. But, and this is once something uh, that somebody did uh, bring it up in the summer of last year's. Oh, it's going to be very ch- be more difficult to exercise in the winter. Mm. For some, for me, it's, yes, it's to get, the dark, days are getting shorter and getting darker. There's going to be less people about. Um, so I think from... Uh, uh, pandemic perspective and and, and and us as a family we've got a rescue dog so he needs to go out for walking so i do the last one at the at the, at the final day, time of the day which could be pretty horrific at 10 10 10 10 30 10 11 o'clock at night because ultimately it's the it's the starting to become the coldest part of the, of the evening and we talked about a couple of days ago where we're having like minus minus 20 degrees in Scotland, that'd be horrific for some people to kind of contemplate. I won't go out in that because it's too cold. But that's why we, we've we've come back to the, you know the convenience and the comfort that we've created. That's why you have a coat. That's why you put more layers on. Um, the dog needs to go to the toilet because the the ultimate other side of that coin is it does it in the house and you don't want that either. So. <laughs> It's looking at things as you've got a plan B or a plan C. I spoke to uh, an American in the United States, came up with a concept of training at, I think I had to work it out. It was, it was between zero and three degrees Fahrenheit, which is, cold. no, I can't remember what it was, but it was extremely cold, but in my perception of it, when I came to speak to him, I was like, well, this is cold. This is for a lot of people of Bikram yoga gyms. They're, they're not, un- they're not unpleasant experiences. Bikram yoga is ultimately it's hot the other way. And <laughs> from a physiologist, ultimately that must, for you, that must be disgusting because it's, it's, it's uh, manifesting loads of bacteria, which is a bad thing as well. But because of people's, assumptions and presumptions of temperature of what is pleasant and what is unpleasant 
they already have they go with preconceived ideas of all this is going to be unbearable because it's cold um and you know you've got uh wim hof and, and his his whole methods of going into um i can't remember what it's called but you know cold immersion therapy which is pretty much what it is uh, and people's perception of ultimately ch- changing i can i can tolerate certain temperatures people going into the sea the temperature the temperature of the sea doesn't really fluctuate that much but people because people have a preconceived idea of air temperature which is probably the difference yes it's going to be unpleasant to first go in to the water because you're warmer than it but the problem is going to when you come out because the air temperature is a lot colder than than you you are so it's probably both physiological adaptations but a psychological one that needs to happen because I've never been a big fan of hot cold therapy but that's probably the worst way to do it because if you do it hot and then you turn to cold that's where you kind of have the the moment where you jump back but I was challenged to do it the opposite where I do it straight away cold I thought this is not too bad it's not as bad as I thought and and it was it was tolerable but it does ultimately and the point i'm making to you yes it's un- it's uncomfortable and it's hard but it does make you in a state of readiness hot water does the complete opposite it relaxes you and makes you lethargic yeah absolutely and it's exactly as you've said it's the um it's the preconceived notion isn't it and I'm laughing when you're talking about the cold water example because that is me I am guilty I will swim open water between March and September um and as you say the temperature of the water doesn't change so why in my mind outside of those months is it too cold for me to get in the water it's because it's in my mind it's a preconceived notion it's a norm that I have set because all of my friends only swim in those months etc etc and this is why we behave in certain ways as humans um because of our preconceived notions because of social norms etc um and vicarious experience is important so this year for the first time I have a couple of friends who have all throughout the winter still got into the same body of water that we were getting into in the summer and because in my mind there's not a huge difference between them and I I'm thinking oh actually maybe I could do that next year um so it is there's a there's a lot that factors into it isn't it I mean you were saying about the sort of the weather obviously being a huge contributor and I think that's more so now than ever because there are no gyms so places that we could have gone before to exercise in shelter if you like are now not available so the the options are probably the great outdoors or your front room and if your family are watching tv your front room is maybe not the best option they're not going to be best pleased um so things like coping strategies action planning so okay if it is minus four degrees and i see i'm not going to go out on the bike Um, I may not be able to even run. What is my coping strategy then? What will I do to still get some sort of physical activity in? Um, Or, you know, maybe it's nothing around safety and it is just discomfort. So it's it's absolutely minging. It's chucking down from the high heavens. I don't want to get soaked. Well, here's what I'll do. I'll put on this, this and this. I'll get the best tunes I can on the go. I'll wear a peak cap so it's not going in my eyes. And trying to get people to come up with little things like that that make it slightly more bearable so that then 
the end goal, the endorphins, and also the feeling of satisfaction that you've done it. And once they've done it a few times, they see it's not so bad. Um, and ultimately, even if you know it's going to be horrible, you'll still get out because you know that good feeling's coming. Um, and it's the also the decision balance and, and getting people to actively write down or discuss the pros and cons of a behavior as well. Um, so, you know, if I do go out, even if it's horrible, this will be the case. Or if I can't go out, then I will do that. So there are lots of ways that we can get people thinking about um, sort of keeping a behavior going, even in the tougher times. But that really is, I think, where planning comes into its own. Coming back to obviously where we live in it, is that not more difficult? If I go back to behaviors of most people, the goal and the self, and I haven't heard that word for a long time, self self efficacy. So I appreciate that. Uh, probably about <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> Old school. Ultimately, for most people, that obviously comes back to you. You need to implement things that are going to ultimately make you change or ultimately look at things from a different perspective. Uh, of having plan A, plan C, uh, plan B, plan C, sorry, and going from however far in the alphabet you need to go as a, 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 a contingency plan as opposed to a what if of, of, of most people will talk about you must have everything in one basket. Why? It might work for them. It might not work for you. Um, you know, we're getting up at four o'clock in the morning. Gurus will talk about that. I haven't done. I haven't done that ever in my entire life, unless I've had a bad night's sleep. But that's another story in itself. But you don't have to be successful by doing it one way. I used to have to get up at five thirty in the morning. You won't see me stirring at that time of day most times nowadays. That does. That's because the goals have changed. It's the, the sport one is had to be up at five thirty because that was the, one of the times we could train in the morning was six o'clock. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd rather pick one of my other sports that we were training at from 11 o'clock onwards and finish by four o'clock in the afternoon. I think loads of people would love to do that in, in their job day to day to, you can get up at eight, say nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, do your job and you're finished by the, the, the middle of the afternoon and be able to do whatever you want. Um, but ultimately that was hard. I'm not saying that was, e it was easy. But it's pushing back against people's preconceived um, conceptual ideas that they have in terms of this is my goal, this is how I want to do it, but you have no plan. You've mm -hmm. got you've got a you've got the right intention, but you have no pro you have no I say plan you have no process. If I, I've got an A and I've got a B. But I have no way in which I'm going to go. Like, but that's going that's going out into the wilderness with no, with being unprepared. You do that in Snowdonia or, or mountain range. That's very dangerous. It's you putting ultimate, other people's lives at risk as well to come and to come and save you. But I think when it comes to probably overall health, I think a person is in between a rock and a hard place because they've been bombarded, been bombarded by information left, right, 
and center. I think I have an advantage because I chose to do a degree that was going to be a supplementation to my sport. I wanted to learn in any way possible to make myself better. I I I was fortunate enough to see biomechanics before I went to uni, physiology, lactate testing before I went to university. That's unpleasant in itself, but so people can uh, get an idea. So for psychology, when I went, it's like, well, it's not imposing as much as the other two, but there's a massive relatability both directions. And where I'm coming at this to, for people that's listening is that's why I have a plethora of outside the box kind of way in thinking is because of my degree. It's always It's always been one to press you to think differently it's like well this is this is what's been done previously in studies go out go out either to prove it right and and advance the study or prove it wrong and ultimately and then back it up with, with with data so i think with me when it comes to that i think it's i've always being that way inclined a little bit anyway with the disabilities i've had to adapt i've had to be flexible and there's always been a plan b or plan c it's only because of being challenged on it that you think differently it's well there shouldn't be a plan b yeah but what happens if it goes wrong and sport told me that you need to have a backup plan just in case for whatever reason you get injured you get dropped you need to have a contingency plan to what are you going to do next mm. so they they kind of persuaded you it's like well you need to do something I might as well do something that's beneficial to me in the short term because i'm being invested in, into to showing up every single day to, to want to learn physiology for me was a little bit too much uh it got too hard. It got too hard. Um, it was interesting, but it was trying to remember things. It gets more complicated. And uh, I think that was biomechanics for me. <laughs> but when you're speaking to regular people, you don't need to speak like that. So I think for me, it's being able to put it into practical sense. And this is the difference between the people that are very um, studious and very research orientated versus people that can put it into practical sense. Mm-hmm. The people that are very, very knowledgeable, but for whatever reason, they can't relate it to, to, to the general person in the street because it's, I speak a certain way. I can't fe- seem to, da- uh, to put it into layman's terms. I'm not going to say dumb it down because I, th- I think sometimes that's bad and be able to make it. So it's, it's pretty clear because this is why you're doing it and this is the the outcome that you're going to be able to get from it and obviously uh the more people that are being able to be in between and being able to relate in both camps i think both flourish from that Mm, translation is key i mean we've known for what 70 years now that exercise is good that's not novel but there's clearly a mismatch between people who are studying and knowing this and the general population knowing this. And that, you know, there is clearly an issue in that translation. And you're right that, you know, that's the bit that counts getting that 
across is really is really the key and, and arguably not even getting the information across that it's good for people and that people can benefit from it because I think ultimately if you ask people do you think you'd benefit from exercise I'm sure the majority would say yes but it's about helping people figure out how that works for them and what that looks like for them and that's the really challenging part as I think we've you know we've gone over and over but ultimately getting people to identify their own barriers and then coming up with their own strategies on how to overcome those barriers with our help. Um, but yeah, hugely, hugely difficult thing to do and something that takes an awful lot of time. And like you say, in an industry that arguably people are looking for a quick fix, um, there probably is no quick fix because it takes a lot of time to find what works, what doesn't work, to bounce back from failure, to fall off the wagon, to get back on. Um, it just it takes time and effort and that's something which arguably we as humans again this comes back to what you were saying earlier we want the fast convenient option always um which is not always the best option I guess um and then the other thing that you mentioned is the plethora of information out there um, you should do hit training, you should do um, metabolic conditioning, you should do fat burning zone work, you know, all of this information is hugely confusing. And, you know, we, we just, we become numb to the amount of information that's being thrown our way. Should I eat low carb, high fat? Should I eat low calorie? Should I fast? Should I, you know, and it's, there's just almost too much conflicting information out there that if you don't have a background in science or, you know, whatever it may be, where you've been taught and trained to think critically and to analyze research, then how do you unpick that and decide what's the right thing to do? Or do you just say, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing because this is way too complicated for me to get into. And I have a school run to do and I've got homeschooling and I've got to be on a team's call in 20 minutes and I can't figure out what I need to do. Um, so I think that has a lot to answer to as well. And that's why I am all for the simple approach. Let's keep things as simple as we can and try to empower people to make the right decision if we can. Oh yeah, but that's, that's, I think this is where the behavior obviously still exists. It's, it's the people that believe they want to change versus acting the change. And, and why, why I say that as to did um, conflicting arguments as, everybody has a coulda shoulda woulda um hypothesis but it takes you know the the it takes the brave the fortune favors the brave to, to ultimate action something despite some of the setbacks that are that are that will occur and i think i'm fortunate to have done it a lot I've got a lot of moments like that in my life to to recall of, you know, I was willing to go into the to wilderness. I didn't know what look that looked like, but I know the other side of that is what I wanted. So it was I talk about, you know, good bulldozing for a brick wall for people or for coaches down the years. Some people will think that's very crazy, but it's, it's the quickest, it's the quickest way through the others to the other side metaphorically 
Uh, I'm not going to physically do something like that, but I always like to imply there's always there's a, there is a there is a solution for you. It's just which one is it? Is it do you go under something? Do you go around it? Do you go over it? Or do you ultimately take on your fears and go head up and go head first and and, and t- take it on? Because the sooner the sooner rather than later you willing to do that. The, the 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 smaller the severity of that problem uh, uh, lies, but obviously, as human nature sometimes dictates, you wait till you hit rock bottom to to ultimately change something. And I I think that in most cases is too late. The the magnitude of the problem is massive, and I have been there. And people do say, well, how did you overcome it? It's hard to put into words. I took the, the spark that somebody gave me and little by little like I pulled myself out of that but I've had the fortune of being having instilled the right foundations well, I say right good foundations to start off with it in, in the environment that my family um, built most people don't have a lot of people don't have that so they don't have the the solid base to to be able to go back to and kind of say, well, this is how I did it. And then obviously be whatever you want to use metaphorically, a house or a wall, you haven't got a sturdy wall to build from because you haven't got a good, you haven't got a good base. But that's not to be said that you can't create it. And this is, I think, where the disconnect is with some of those individuals is they believe I've tried, I've failed. I can't do it because I keep going back to the same start point. Okay, let's go deeper. Because you said empowerment. Let's go deeper than that. Let's dig up those bad foundations, build you good foundations and start from there. Um, so I think it's probably a stubbornness that I have is that I don't take no for an answer. It's like, well, we're going to try and get you to a yes on your terms. I'm not saying I want the yes on my terms because that doesn't serve you. And um, how do we do that? We've got to obviously go back. We've got to backdate to the problem and and and, and resolve that at, at that particular moment. Well, how does that make you feel? Oh, I would probably attest most people would want to change for for better or worse. Of what is it impact is going to have on you long term on your overall health? I know that works because I said at the beginning, why did people resort to guilt tripping? I know that I'm going to get the response out of that that I want because I'm going to a place you that you don't want to go. So some people are willing to are willing to go there. Some people are unwilling to go there. And that probably comes down to could have, should have, would have. It's like, do you really, do you really, really in your heart of heart want to change? I'm quite happy for you to say no. Because I can accept that. And ultimately, I'm not one of these individuals that's going to not tell you the truth. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm going to tell you what you don't want to hear. And some people respect that. Some people run a mile because I've put them in a position that they never thought they were going to experience. You... have been in a, a position of wanting to change. If you if you want to stay where you are, 
I think the severity of it that that individual probably needs to look at is what what impact is it having on the the people around you, and I think that's that's the biggest one of you know if anybody's got kids, what what kind of behavior is that instilling in in in, in the next generation? It should make you feel pretty bad, but obviously to end on a more less somber note. And I like to ask this of every guest, Lizzie, if you had an opportunity to sit down with any athlete, coach, scientist for that matter, who would that be and why? Oh, such a good question, isn't it? Um, There are so, so many to answer that. Um, I am... Who do I go for here? Oh, God. Who do I go for? I'm just going to go for the first person that came to mind. Um, So Lizzie Dignam is a a female cyclist who um, I am taking serious inspiration from at the moment. She's done a lot for women in cycling um, and particularly mothers in cycling. Um, and also works hard at, at generating um, the drive of the next generation to, to get into the sport. So she's the first person that came to mind. So I'm going to go with her, but I could fill a whole dinner hall full of people that I would just love to pick their brains on, um, on the world of, of sport and, and science. Um, Greg White is another. So Greg taught me at John Moore University. Um, he's worked with lots and lots of, of um, varied individuals, but anyone who's followed along the sports relief challenges. And I mean, and when we talk about behavior change and taking people to uncomfortable places, Greg's done a lot. Um, so I would love to sit down with him again. Um, just so many, so many people. Um, so, yeah, I think I'd have Lizzie Diagnan around for a, a cup of tea and hopefully a spin around the hills. I could sit on her wheel for a while, maybe. <laughs> And my final question, Lizzie, before we wrap up the episode, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? It would be um, not to overcomplicate things. Movement is good. And however that works for you is always better than doing nothing. So one thing I always um, talk to to students about um, in terms of one great question to finish a session with with a client is what's one thing that you can do today that will move you towards change? Just one thing. Um, So that would be my question to any listeners. Um, You know, what's one thing that you can do today to help change? So once again, Thanks again, Lizzie, for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hoth, an athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think and execute, not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete. <laughs>